electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Apple kicking off its developers conference right now with Tim Cook set to take the virtual stage, the event highlighting the company's awkward relations with developers after its trial with Epic. We look at how they can get the goodwill back. Plus, the stocks near all-time highs. Is this as good as it gets for the markets? We've heard the refrain many a time, but one strategist says no. Ignore all that. He'll tell us why and what will drive the next leg higher. And same-day everything is the next frontier companies have to conquer. We'll give you one top Amazon watcher's take on the stock. But we do begin with the markets. Christina Partsinevel is here with those numbers for us. Christina? Happy Monday. Equities, though, mostly lower today, despite it being relatively uneventful for trading. The sell-off comes after major indexes finished higher last week with the S&P closing at a new record. If we're talking about sectors, healthcare, another outperformer on biotech, strength, of course, in the meme and Reddit stocks, extending their recent rally, materials, industrials, and consumer staples, worst performers. But I want to focus on a winning sector. That would be cannabis. And that's after uh, some positive news in the industry. We know last week Amazon announcing support for a federal bill to legalize pot. And this weekend, Connecticut leaders on Saturday announcing a new marijuana legalization bill over the weekend. So three of the largest cannabis stocks that are trading in the United States, Tilray, Sundial, and Kronos, all trending higher. And we have an honorable mention, which I'll end with, Tesla down after Elon Musk officially canceled the Model S Plaid Plus, the most expensive version of the flagship sedan. Kelly, back and to you. And now his rival is going to beat him into space, Christina. You wonder, is there, a, you know, without a, any effect? On the Tesla side? I don't know. It's possible. Definitely. That too. You've got to keep the cool factor. Uh, Thank you very much, Christina Parsonevelis. It's the second time Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference is taking place virtually, and it's the first major event after its battle with game developer Epic. Tim Cook is taking the stage. Josh Lipton has more on what we should expect this hour. Josh? So, Kelly, it is time for Apple's big software show, and that means we're going to see new versions of Apple's operating systems. First and foremost, iOS 15, where we expect updates to notifications, privacy protection, and messages, where Apple, of course, competes against rivals like Facebook's WhatsApp. Software will be updated for iPad, Watch, Mac, and TV as well. But what about new hardware? Hardware? Well, that is anybody's guess right now, but some do think we might see new Macs outfitted with Apple's splashy M1 chip. The Developers Conference certainly does feel kind of different this year. That's because of the very public fight Apple is having with some of its developers, like Epic, Spotify, and Match. Of course, developers build apps because they want to make money. It's a good bet that Tim Cook is not going to remind these developers just how much money they can make on his platform. Back to you, Kelly. All right, Josh, thank you. We'll check back in with you soon. Josh Lipton, Apple's reputation with developers has taken a bit of a hit in its trial against Epic Games. Could we actually expect to see Apple make any changes to its so-called walled garden ecosystem as a result of all of that? And if they don't change it, will regulators ultimately force them to? Joining me now are platformer editor and CNBC contributor Casey Newton and CNBC's own John Fort. Welcome to you both. John, I'll direct the question your way first. Developers, I think the, the Apple trials left kind of a sour taste in their mouth about some of the things Apple's been 
up to, I mean, look, I know we had, uh, what's his name from Snapchat? Um, he said, you know, we love Apple. They're a wonderful partner. Evan Spiegel, yeah. But then others say, I don't know. They're talking about it like they take all the credit for the success of the App Store and all the credit for every all the things that the developers do. But then they don't let developers do anything. They can't share payment. Uh, they can't pick their own uh, payments sometimes uh, processes with customers. They can't even tell them what the rules of the App Store are. They, store are. They, they can't communicate with them the way that they would want to. Are any of those things you think on the table here? Oh, well, absolutely. They're on the table. But part of what's happening here is the feud is with some of Apple's most successful developers and just some of them. And when you get all this power as a platform, you can look across at Amazon and what they're dealing with with some third parties. You can look across at Google and what they're dealing with on search. Some people start to say, you know what? Yeah, there are some things that aren't fair, and I want to keep more of my money. Apple was just putting out press releases last week about how much uh, money that they've helped to create in this whole ecosystem, hundreds of billions of dollars, and had lots of developers in there saying, oh, Apple's wonderful, Apple's great. Now, of course, there are always some developers who don't feel that way. This is Apple's chance to trumpet at WWDC. Hey, we've got new features, new innovation coming that's going to help you make more money, and the good's going to outweigh the bad. That at least is going to be their argument here. Casey, is that do they do they have any reason to change? I mean, to to John's point, when you are the platform, you get to kind of set the rules. So even if some portion of the community wants a little bit more transparency, direct access to customers, whatever they have. I mean, who's going to put that pressure on Apple? Are they ever really going to face it? Well, I think that the who's going to put the, the pressure on is the big guys, right? It is the, the biggest uh, developers here, like the, the Robloxes, the Netflixes, the Spotify's that are out there kind of banging their chests a little bit saying, you know what, this cut really is uh, unfair given what we're bringing to the platform. And I think the debate that you're seeing playing out right now is this question of who's really bringing the, the, the value to the developer ecosystem? Is it Apple by creating the hardware or is it, you know, these thousands and thousands of developers who are putting cool stuff on those phones? Yeah. And it's kind of it's both like when you go to the store. Right. If it's a nice store, you've gone there and you've expect to see nice stuff. You you don't just want to walk into the store and hang out there. You want to buy things and get good services. So, yes, the things that are stocked on the shelves are important, but also that store experience, the customer service feeling secure. All of that is important. So, you know, Apple has been flexible here. Arguably, they should be a lot more flexible because there are other players and other ecosystems that are trying to put pressure on them. But part of what Apple does in WWDC is put out new products, new features to try to bolster its case that, you know what, you might be a little unhappy, but you're going to be happy you stayed with our rules. So, yeah, I expect to see some flexibility, but probably not too much. Apple likes making money. That works very well for them uh, so far, although the stock has been on more of a soft patch lately. I mean, Casey... I don't want to read too much into that. This is a phenomenally profitable company. What, yeah. As we listen throughout this hour for the headlines, what would be a, a big headline to you in terms of either it has offered something new that developers really want or that it's not backing down in terms of kind of the fundamental setup of the App Store? Yeah, you know, what I'm really looking for is what are they going to do with iMessage? This is one of the most popular messaging apps in the world, but Apple has never really treated it like a full-fledged social network. There's some reporting out there that they're going to make some enhancements to it today. Uh, If they do, does that wind up becoming an even bigger competitor for a WhatsApp, a Facebook Messenger, or some of those apps? So I think there could be some really interesting opportunities there. But could they ever, Casey, open it up? And I mean, the whole point of iMessage for those of us who use it is that encryption, you know, is that security? Can they ever add social features to it that would make it a truly more of a social platform? 
Yeah, it's a great question. It's really hard to add social features with encryption, but you know, WhatsApp has been able to build plenty of stuff and that's encrypted end to end. So I do think there are a lot of opportunities there for Apple if they decide to get serious about it. It's an exciting prospect in part because Apple is historically so bad at everything social. So it's like, have they figured it out this time if they roll out with that or are they just going to stay safe? But I think the most important thing they can do at WWDC is announce new M1 chips perhaps in uh, the MacBook Pro that are even more powerful and announce momentum in the developer community toward tuning their software specifically for Apple's homegrown chips. Because if you're an Apple investor that wants them to continue making profits and maintain control over their ecosystem, innovation that differentiates them from other platforms is how they're going to match. And they may not be as great at social platforms, but they were great with developing this chip, which has gotten just rave reviews, like you said, and maybe leaning into that. But everybody Google mobile me. Google mobile you? Mobile me. (laughs) Casey, Casey, explain it to me. What's mobile me? Mobile Me was an early Apple uh, effort at social that did not go all that all that great. Uh, Steve Jobs had to fire a lot of people after that one came out. Got it. Okay, that wasn't the verb of the day. Casey Newton and John Ford, thank you both very, very much. We'll continue to watch for headlines out of that event this hour. Let's turn to stocks flirting with record levels after a rapid rebound from their pandemic lows last year. So is this as good as it gets for the market? My next guest says, don't fall for that narrative. Joining me now is Brian Belsky. He's the chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Brian, good to see you again. Why does that narrative bug you so much? Oh, it bugs me. It bugs me because we're still going to have double-digit earnings growth. It, it bugs me because the narrative, Kelly, over the last several years, not just the last several months, but the se- last several years, is that analysts have been too negative. They've under-promised uh, and over-delivered in terms of company performance. And the quarterly earnings in the first quarter were just phenomenal, especially considering what we've been through as a society in the stock market. We think earnings next quarter are going to be very good as well. It's not really until the first quarter of 2022, Kelly, that you have these tougher comparisons, obviously, where the math gets tough. So I think it's very dangerous. And we've looked at peak-type analysis for years in our career whether or not it's peak margins or peak valuation or peak earnings. Anytime you think as an investor, you can sell at the peak and buy at the trough, uh, it doesn't usually work that way. So we think it's a false narrative and quite dangerous that people are going to be you know, negative on the market thinking that earnings are peaking. We actually think earnings can, can just only continue to improve from here. So I'm curious as well what you would make of the movement in all the meme stocks when a lot of people are looking for early signs that the market is peaking or that this is as good as it gets. They might look to uh, the more speculative plays. Are you following them with, as any kind of barometer for the broader markets here? No, no, I'm not. And actually, I love the meme stocks because they take away focus from from the market. And it's just kind of, again, I think it's more of a sideshow. Santoli talked about it in a piece that he wrote over the weekend. We've been saying it's a sideshow for several months here. I think it's kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, the good is, is that uh, we are seeing increased focus on equities. People are getting interested in equities again. Remember, this has been an out-of-service out of and out-of-style asset class, meaning equities, for majority of this new millennium. And uh, we've, been, we've been in bonds. We've been in private equity. We've been in, fixed in, uh, we've been in um, other fixed income areas. We've been in emerging markets. We've not been in U.S. stocks. Hmm. And so I think that the likelihood of, of equities becoming more in vogue actually is a good thing. The bad is 
These companies that are benefiting from these trends actually were bad companies before all of this happened, bad companies during it, and I think bad companies coming out of it. And there's going to be some controversy from that. But, but these are trends that are not secular, thematical type of, of fundamental plays. And lastly, the ugly, this is not going to end well, uh, just like a majority of manias don't end well. And I think the, the results in the performance with respect to what it has to the overall market actually has been de de minimis. So I love the rhetoric surrounding the meme stocks because it takes away from the overall market, which actually, by the way, continues to look very, very good. So when you say, OK, well, what are the good companies that are the, you know, the leadership? I mean, your favorite sector right now is financials. I don't know if that's going to get, you know, anyone that excited, um, which is not to say that tech, you know, consumer isn't still where you'd want to be for the next three to five years. But specifically to financials, I mean, is that going to be our leadership here through kind of the months to come, the remainder of this year? They have done really well so far. You know, I think so, Kelly. In the old days, uh, it used to be that the market can't go without financials going, and we haven't said that for well, about 10 or 12 years, and it now has become as tech goes, so goes the market. And I think from a secular basis, it's clearly as tech goes, so goes the market. But over the next 12 to 18 months, we continue to believe the majority of our institutional clients are massively underweight financials. We think the theme of scale still works there in the money center banks, the brokers, and the asset managers. Uh, regional banks are actually trading at a premium to Canadian banks. I think Canadian Canadian banks look exceedingly uh, value uh, imp uh, attractive right now. And so I think that this financial move in terms of growth at a reasonable price and more importantly, consistent growth, the market's had a heck of a run. We know that. So we want to try to find high quality areas with consistent earnings, pay a little dividend at attractive valuations. We think the big banks show that right now. All right. Brian, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Kelly. Brian Belsky of BMO Capital Markets. Coming up, we want it and we want it now. We'll speak with an analyst who says the on-demand delivery battle is just kicking off and Amazon is going in big. Plus, the CEO of Novartis will join us in the biggest oncology conference of the year. We'll talk about their new data and the battle against cancer and other serious blood disorders. Biogen reopens for trade at 1.30 p.m. Don't go anywhere. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back. I want to give you an update on shares of Biogen, which are halted. Uh, trading will begin at 1.30 in just about 14 minutes' time, and it could be a big pop after approval from the FDA. We'll talk a lot more about what exactly was approved under what conditions for its Alzheimer drug. And we are going to be speaking with the CEO of Biogen about this at 2.30 p.m. Eastern time in Power Lunch. So a lot is going to happen on this front in the next 90 minutes. You definitely don't want to miss it. Meantime, just when you thought the delivery wars couldn't get any hotter, Morgan Stanley says same-day shipping is about to go mainstream, and Amazon will lead the way. Let's bring in Brian Nowak. He's senior internet equity research analyst at Morgan Stanley. Brian, it's good to have you. You're always so thoughtful on Amazon. It seems obvious that they would be the ones with the same-day shipping lead, right? I mean, how far are they ahead of the competition, and what do you mean in the sense that this is about to go mainstream? Yeah, thanks for having me, Kelly, as always. You know, I think it's um, it's still early in the way we think about same-day delivery, but it's interesting the way things have changed post-shelter in, where you now have a lot of new players in the shared economy across Uber and DoorDash and a lot of players who are partnering with traditional retailers to bring things to people same day, one to two hours. Think about how you're ordering your groceries, your random items from convenience stores like Slurpees or Slim Jims. You can get a lot of things now in one to two hours. Hmm. And so what we think happens next with Amazon, and we sort of look at the types of build they're doing in the last mile and what they're prepping for, we think a broader same day offering is on the come from Amazon. And what we think that's going to do is actually going to further change consumer behavior, conditioning people to expect things even faster than they do now, right. and ultimately even more share gains for Amazon. So, you know, you make a good point that a lot of the things, so for instance, I can order same day delivery from Whole Foods right now, an Amazon company, but obviously there's other grocery, grocers who do this as well. I can go to Walmart, I can go to Target, I can do pickup and get things pretty much on demand. Is Amazon going to be able to maintain a lead relative to them? And if so, what are they going to do to fight back? Yeah, we, um, it's, it's, it's a very good question. So it's, it's competitive. And uh, when, you, when you look at the amount of consumer expenditure on these buckets of what we're calling on-demand categories, so grocery, consumer packaged goods, et cetera, those categories of consumer expenditure make up about 65% of the remaining dollars that are offline in the United States. So this is the next battleground. And so we think that the key to really delivering items to people at scale in a profitable manner is back-end logistics. So how do you manage micro-fulfillment in warehouses? How do you pick and pack more items per hour? How do you deliver things faster? That's actually Amazon's competitive advantage 101. So we expect Amazon to build. We expect them to roll out more and more micro-fulfillment or new logistics technologies. Hmm. And we think that is going to be one of their advantages versus these competitors. But you also hit the nail on the head in that don't expect the traditional retailers and the grocery stores to, to, give, to give up. We think they're going to continue to partner with Uber, partner with DoorDash, and partner with more of these emerging mm-hmm. companies just to try to compete against Amazon. And which is a, something to look at if you're an Uber investor, a DoorDash investor, and the rest of it. But I just want to make it clear to everybody, your price target on Amazon is $4,500. That's significant upside from where it's trading today. Um, and it's interesting to note that right. two-day prime began 16 years ago, so maybe it is time. Uh, for the upgrade. Brian, since we have you here, I'm going to switch gears. Hope I don't put you on the spot, but I just want to ask about Jeff Bezos going into space. Now that he's handing over CEO duties to Andy Jassy, he is still a big Amazon shareholder. I mean, is there any analyst kind of um, implication in this announcement today? No, no, nothing material. I mean, uh, space has been a a large part of, 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 of Jeff Bezos's ambitions personally for a long time. So I don't think it's that unexpected. You know, Blue Origin has been an area of his personal investment for years. And I would say point two, the 
the bench at Amazon is very deep. You know, you mentioned Andy, Andy Jassy taking over as CEO. There's also multiple other very high caliber executives across the company running logistics, running Prime, running third party marketplace that we think are actually going to make this a pretty seamless transition, even as uh, Jeff Bezos moves from being CEO to more of a higher level seat chairman. And now he's heading to space uh, in the next few months. Yeah, I, I imagine on some level, the cool factor has to help the company more than it hurts it. But I finally just want to ask about the regulatory issues. We talked to the D.C. attorney general the other day who's going after them. Um, will their move into same day shipping ultimately invite the ire of regulators or will everybody argue that the benefit to the consumer outwhelms, uh, overwhelms any concern that they might have about kind of owning the e-commerce space? I think um, there's, there's, there's three sort of important points to kind of keep in mind here. You know, one, you, you hit on just the, the value and the utility to the consumer through all their investments. Two, I would say that the, the amount of job creation that Amazon is actually bringing to the United States through all this hiring, and this is a company that employs over a million people now, and it's still rapidly growing. So they do matter to jobs. And then I would say point three they're helping small, medium-sized businesses. You know, while, while a lot of their business is first party, keep in mind that a majority of the business is still third-party sellers who are selling items through Amazon's network. So are the regulatory headlines going to go away? No, but I would just sort of keep in mind utility to shoppers, utility to job creation, and ultimately utility to third-party sellers are the other three things that Amazon really brings to the equation. All right, Brian, thanks for all your time today addressing all those issues. We appreciate yeah. it. Brian Thanks Nowak so much, Morgan Stanley. Coming up, forgotten 401ks. New data shows the savings being left behind by millions of Americans every year and what it's costing retirees. Plus, one of these payment stocks is getting an upgrade today as the analyst says it will benefit more from a vaccine-driven U.S. recovery. Can you guess it? We're back in a moment. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get you a quick check on the market. It's Dow's down 145, about half a percent decline. It's about a quarter percent for the S&P. The Nasdaq is positive by 13 points. As for the movers this hour, we're all watching the meme stocks still. They're on the move again today. You can see AMC is up 20 percent, leading the pack here, although GameStop, Bed Bath, BlackBerry costs, they're all up as well. Remember, AMC was up 80 percent last week. It's currently trading just under $58 a share. Uh, just an incredible move across the board as people also watch to this Reddit-fueled rally to see if there's any spillover effect positive or negative for the broader markets. Over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Good afternoon. Here's what's happening at this hour. A big immigration ruling from the Supreme Court. The justices ruling unanimously that immigrants in the U.S. under temporary protected status will not be allowed to apply for citizenship. The decision affects some 400,000 people who have sought shelter in the U.S. from disasters in their native countries. In Mexico, President López Obrador and his party's allies are expected to maintain their majority in Mexico's lower chamber of Congress, although they've fallen short of a two-thirds majority needed to approve constitutional reforms. Amtrak says that it has restored daily service on long-distance routes along the east and Gulf Coast. This after receiving billions in new emergency funding from Congress. The routes include New York to New Orleans, Savannah, Georgia, and Miami. 
and teens surging into the workforce in May. One in three 16 to 19-year-olds had a job. That's the highest rate in 13 years. And their unemployment rate sank to the lowest level since 1953. News tonight, what sort of jobs are they getting and how much are they making? Find out at 7 p.m. Eastern. You're now up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much, Rahel Solomon. Still ahead on College Conference, ASCO is underway today, bringing in big names in the biotech and pharmaceutical space. We have the CEO of Novartis joining us next to go over their latest data and treatments. We're back in a moment on The Exchange. Welcome back. Take a look at shares of Biogen. They're halted around $286. That makes us a $43 billion market cap company. The FDA approved its Alzheimer's drug to make it the first new therapy for the disease in nearly two decades. It's going to reopen for trading any second now. Uh, meanwhile, Eli Lilly is also surging because it also has Alzheimer's treatments in the works. So again, B IIIB shares were halted. There's Lilly up 13.5% on the session. Um, but we'll check in to see what traders say could be a pop of anywhere from 30 to 50. Okay, we're reopen. Biogen is trading right now at $428. It's a moving target. It's a 50% pop on this FDA approval. We're going to get a whole lot more uh, on this decision, conditional decision in some ways from our Meg Terrell next hour when we also speak with the CEO of Biogen about this approval. Remember, this was a somewhat controversial treatment uh, by those who say it doesn't necessarily, I mean, you know, the I won't go into the uh, efficacy. We'll talk about that next hour. But the FDA's decision came as somewhat of a surprise. And there you can see the investors catching up to that reality, bidding the shares up about 55 percent to 444. Again, this was a now after this trading, this is now a 66 billion dollar market cap company. So just a huge, huge move, both for the stock, but also for the Alzheimer's community today. We'll continue to monitor it. It's up about 57%. Meanwhile, as ASCO goes on, that's the annual meeting of the American Society for Clinical Oncology. Some of the biggest names in biotech and the pharmaceutical community are out there presenting cutting-edge oncology treatments and research. Novartis unveiled new data from its portfolio of therapies and cancer therapy platforms that it's exploring. In fact, joining us right now for an exclusive interview is our Meg Terrell with the CEO of Novartis. Meg? Kelly, thank you so much. Fosnar Simmons, thanks for being with us on this virtual ASCO day. You guys were the talk of the weekend at the conference with a prostate cancer drug you have there, which uses sort of a new technology harnessing really uh, radiation, but in a targeted way to treat advanced prostate cancer. Tell us about what this treatment does and what you hope it'll accomplish in prostate cancer. Yeah, thanks a lot, Meg. We've made investments in a technology called radioligand therapies. And what these technologies enable us to do is take specific molecules that target solid tumors like prostate cancer. We link those uh, molecules with radioactive particles, and that allows us to target radiation in micro doses right at the cancer. Now, this is the second impressive readout we have. We already have an approved drug called Lutathera in neuroendocrine tumors. But this was an important milestone for us because now it shows us that this technology can be applied perhaps in multiple solid cancers. So the data we, we showed on Sunday was in late lines of prostate cancer, an impressive overall survival benefit, an impressive effect on progression-free survival as well. And we plan to take this medicine called LUPSMA to earlier lines of prostate cancer over the years to come. So and it was a really exciting day for us and a validation of this platform where we're clearly the global leader. 
So earlier lines of prostate cancer is one potential application of the technology. Are there other cancers in which it could potentially work? I understand that you have to figure out that marker to be able to target this payload of radiation really specifically. Where else could it potentially work? Well, we've been able to really build with a series of licensing deals a range of different compounds now that we're taking into other solid tumors. These solid tumors range from various forms of lung cancer, various brain cancers. Uh, we're, we're also looking at other solid tumor types. We haven't disclosed all of our targets as a competitive space, but we already have multiple phase two trials ongoing. Uh, we signed three deals in quarter two to bring in more of these markers, which we think uh, will enable us to, uh, to really move quickly into solid tumors. What's exciting about this technology is when you treat what you see. So first we give a biomarker and we can light up the body to see where is the tumor. And then we treat and see, can we reduce the tumor? And that speeds up drug development as well. So I, we believe it's going to open up a whole new era of solid tumor treatments. Well, you're mentioning biomarkers, and I have to ask you, although we are talking on ASCO Cancer Research Day, this decision from the FDA about the Biogen Alzheimer's drug is just massive for the entire industry. I mean, really establishing this new pathway for uh, approving an Alzheimer's drug based on clearing the plaques from the brain under accelerated approval. I wonder for Novartis, which is also working in neuroscience and many different diseases, do you see this as an important decision for the industry and in showing a sort of flexibility or creativity um, from the FDA and what has been a very controversial decision here on this Alzheimer's drug? You know, Meg, first it's important to recognize that neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's are absolutely devastating for these patients. And as you noted, it's been decades since we've had meaningful progress against many of these diseases. One area we're focused on is Huntington's disease. We have a phase 2B uh, program that's about to start uh, using an oral uh, RNA splicing agent to target one of, of the biomarkers for Huntington's disease called mutant Huntington protein. And certainly on my mind now is with this new pathway, could we accelerate, if the drug ultimately proves effective in reducing mutant Huntington's protein, could we accelerate the approval of this medicine and ultimately confirm it in confirmatory studies? I think it's a reflection of the immense unmet need in these patient populations that regulators are looking for ways to bring therapeutics forward. And it certainly opens up doors. We have a big neurodegenerative research and development operation and certainly we'll be putting pens to paper over that or, or at least banging on our computers over the weekend ahead to really think about how we can accelerate our own programs. That's fascinating. I have to ask you also about COVID and the pandemic and from the perch uh, where you're sitting, what does the pandemic look like, both in terms of just its impact on global health right now, but also on your business as so much of what we've seen through the healthcare space has been tied to recovery out of the pandemic, which is not happening everywhere universally. What does it look like to you right now? Well, you know, Meg, I had the opportunity to attend the G7 summit with the top pharma CEOs as well as health ministers from around the world last week in the, in the UK. And I have to say, on the one hand, tremendous optimism at the pace right now of the vaccine scale-up, expectations to be over 10 billion doses of vaccines. Novartis, we're supporting Pfizer-BioNTech as well as CureVac with our own manufacturing operations. So I see on the one hand, rapid expansion of the vaccine supply, improvements, of course, in developed countries. And I remain optimistic by the early part of next year, we can get broad vaccine utilization, even to the low and low and middle income countries, which we have to prioritize now. 
We have to start tackling those countries and getting the public health impact that we need. I'm also heartened to see the positive data on severe disease and hospitalization on variants. Uh, so I think we have a, a great solution at hand with these vaccines if we can get access uh, levels up to, to the, really the levels we need them to be. Now, in terms of the impact on our own business, we've seen a resurgence through Q2. We're seeing a normalization in almost every therapeutic area that we operate in. And that's, that's really promising because I think that gets us back to growth, gets us back to our story of growing the company as, as we see in a solid way out over the next five years. We'll have to watch it carefully, but overall, we're optimistic. I think one thing we'll have to particularly pay attention to is cancer diagnosis rates which fell over the course of the pandemic means we're going to have more patients, important for ASCO, who are going to be diagnosed later in the course of their disease. That's something we're going to have to tackle. It's such an important thing to be watching as we come out of this. Dr. Vosnarasimhan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Meg. And Meg, we appreciate you bringing that to us. And obviously, Meg, while you're still here, can we just get a a final thought um, for this hour? We'll talk a lot more next hour about Biogen. But just as the stock reopens, it's up about 60 percent right now. That is higher than even people on Wall Street were expecting that this stock could go. I mean, they were saying $400 on approval. And I think the thing that is really driving it higher is even though there's this creative pathway for this drug to be getting to market where they have to run a confirmatory trial to confirm the clinical benefit of actually slowing the cognitive declines in Alzheimer's or the FDA could potentially pull this drug back off the market. So it's not a clear home run, you know, approval. But in another sense, it really is because the label for the drug is not restricted to any specific patient groups. And so that is really, I think, driving the stock higher than analysts had expected, but could potentially go on this surprising news. Does that mean, Meg, that they could take this drug to market, that people could use it um, until or unless further trial data comes in? Or would they have to get the trial data before it could ever go to market? No, they can launch now or essentially whenever they're ready to launch. And we'll talk with Michelle Vunatsis, the CEO of Biogen, about that next hour. Um, this is a pathway that's been used before a lot in cancer drugs. There are some other drugs like Ferducian muscular dystrophy where this mm-hmm. pathway has been used, where essentially they say it looks like it works on this one marker of doing something that we know should confer benefit clinically. But then they actually have to show these confirmatory trials to say, OK, this does improve or at least slow down people's uh, memory loss or or trouble thinking clearly that come with Alzheimer's disease. The question is, how fast will Biogen be required to run that trial? If it doesn't work, does the FDA actually pull the drug off the market? So many questions here uh, about this news. And the volatility has actually halted the stock again. So it's up just under 50 percent right now, $420. Again, this is almost a $60 billion market cap now. Uh, Meg, we'll see you next hour for that. Very, very much looking forward to it. And thanks for bringing that to us in the meantime. Our Meg Terrell speaking with the CEO of Novartis there just a moment ago. After this quick break, 10% of Amazon's shares are going to space, taking advantage of the travel trends and America's lost trillion. It's all coming up in Rapid Fire. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. Got a bunch of other headlines to catch you up on right now. Let's go over a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. Joining me to break down these stories are Morgan Brennan, Michael Santoli, and Deer Jabosa. Welcome to everybody. Our first topic today is the news of the day. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos will join Blue Origin's first ever passenger flight when it blasts off next month. He's calling it the opportunity of a lifetime on Instagram today. I want to go on this flight because it's a thing I've wanted to do all my life. It's an adventure. 
It's a big deal for me. I invited my brother to come on this first Yes, flight. he will be joined by his brother Mark, plus the winner of a charity auction happening right now ending Saturday. The highest bid as of this morning is $2.8 million. The flight is scheduled for July, I think, 20th, two weeks after Bezos officially steps down as Amazon CEO, I guess, to help quell any shareholder concerns. Morgan, I give his brother credit. If it were my sibling, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a lot. I'm not saying because of who your siblings are. It's just it's a big vote of confidence. It's a big vote of confidence, and I think it's a big vote of confidence to see Jeff Bezos actually be on this inaugural crewed space flight as well. Really speaks to that safety element. I mean, this is the New Shepard vehicle, the suborbital rocket and capsule, has been past the edge of space and back at some 15 of these tests so far, but never with people on board. So certainly it is a huge moment in what is already shaping up to be a huge year just in terms of space tourism in general. We have this now, July 20th, which, as you mentioned, is the 52nd anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, uh, the first time we saw human feet on the moon. So that, that's the key to that date. And then, of course, later in the summer, likely Virgin Galactic with Richard Branson. And then in September, as soon as September, that SpaceX flight with Jared Isaacman and the inspiration for all civilian crewed flight around orbit for a couple in orbit wow. for a couple of days around Earth. And Deirdre, everybody's looking now to Elon Musk for some kind of uh, response. And from what we can tell, he hasn't tweeted in almost <laughs> 24 hours. No, we've heard from Richard Branson, but we haven't heard from Elon Musk yet. We know that he's competitive with Jeff Bezos. But Kelly, one of the uh, things I noticed about this is we now know what is behind Jeff Bezos's glow up a few years ago. You know what picture I'm talking about, that really muscular one. To get He's ready been for training space? to become an astronaut. I don't know. <laughs> I think he might have had other motivations. Michael, what do you think? I don't know. Morgan will have to so. answer that. I mean, that's got to fit into yeah. it, right? <laughs> Well, I think it, it certainly fits into the idea of a next act uh, in general for uh, for Bezos after building a whatever one point six trillion dollar company. It seems to be fine uh, running its own on, on its own under a successor. And I, I agree that I mean, just the idea I'm trying to think of an analogy. If, you know, a hundred years ago, some CEO of a huge company decided to take a, a cross country you know, flight in a plane when it was considered to be, you know, kind of a, a risky proposition, what it might have meant for aviation. So uh, hard to really uh, find fault with that element of sort of, you know, going someplace that you basically are implicitly asking other people to go yes. uh, on the frontier here. I'm, I'm probably going to completely get this wrong, Morgan, but I think like Teddy Roosevelt did a cross-country trip in, a, in cars or something to try to, again, kind of encourage people to go see the country and maybe trust this new method of transportation. And maybe I'm off by a few decades, but uh, point B, is this technology ready for prime time? It seems like a, an obvious question to ask, but what has been the catalyst to make all of a sudden four weeks from now um, basically, the, Jeff Bezos becomes the first person to achieve this, even before Branson, even before Musk. Yeah, and I think the catalyst is those 15 successful test flights so far. Uh, and the fact that you're talking about technology that's been in development for, in the case of Blue Origin, I mean, that company was started in 2000. In the case of Virgin Galactic, you're talking about 2004. These are technologies. These are companies that have been developing this type of capability for quite a number of years now. Uh, you know, and back in 2019, the expectation was that 2020 was going to be the year of human spaceflight. Hmm. And it was given that SpaceX, those two SpaceX missions for NASA, but in terms of the paying passengers to space and the space tourism stuff, because of COVID, that really pushed the, to this year. And it is poised to be a very busy summer. But this has all been decades in the making for yeah. these companies. No, that's a great timeline. It's a great timeline. Thank you. All right. Let's go from space to sidewalks now, where Amazon's Sidewalk Project is set to launch across all Echo devices tomorrow. You need to know about this. Here's how it works. 
Customers will share a slice of their Wi-Fi bandwidth with the neighborhood, so everyone's home security and Bluetooth devices can stay connected in case anyone loses internet connection. Customers are automatically opted in, so you have to take steps to opt out if you're not interested. That's got some privacy critics up in arms, Deirdre. But does this, you know, there's a Washington Post headline, Deirdre, that says Amazon is about to share your internet connection with neighbors. Is that accurate? I mean, is that really what's going on? Is it my actual Wi-Fi connection? It is. It is a small part of your Wi-Fi connection to create this sort of mesh network. And we did question sort of the Amazon VP of devices on this, David Limp, a few weeks ago. And he said that all of the data is going to be anonymized. However, we know with big tech companies that that sometimes is easier said than done in some of these privacy controls as well. There was that couple, I don't know if you remember it, a story that their um, voices were recorded, a conversation, a private one, and then sent to a co-worker. And that was obviously, you know, a crack in their privacy issues. But stuff like that can happen. So you might want to be careful. And it is fairly easy to opt out. My question, though, is why have everyone opt in when the privacy landscape is changing so much? But in order for this thing to work, you need to have a large percentage of neighborhoods of the population on Echo or Ring devices actually take part I mean, Michael, security wise, I absolutely see the appeal. Of course, you'd want, you know, when you look back at your footage to be able to see someone down the street or, you know, you name it. But I'm just curious if you think this is an ill-advised concept or launch or idea, just generally speaking. I've kind of learned not to ask the question who was asking for this when it comes to technology, because almost all the things we now consider indispensable, nobody quite asked for specifically, and it just (laughs) existed in the world, and maybe people bought into it, maybe they didn't, but then it started to seem normal. So perhaps that's what this is. It's some kind of of improvised version of having a little bit of a local 5G uh, kind of bubble around your, your neighborhood. I don't necessarily see... The, the huge payoff to the upside, it's kind of minor conveniences you're getting along the way. Uh, but, you know, if this just is sort of the way it is, you know that your signal is kind of bleeding out into the world anyway. Uh, and this just kind of formalizes it and puts a little utility on it. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. I think we're in an opt, you know, an opt out world. In other words, people just assume uh, that their stuff's being shared uh, unless you tell them otherwise. Dear, your quick last word on this. Quick last word. I don't know. I guess it's with all of these devices, the more devices we have tracking our lives, listening to us, you have to weigh the benefits and the drawbacks. If you're comfortable sharing a lot of your information with Amazon, then this might be right for you. It certainly provides a lot of ease, a lot more coverage. Your lights won't go off. You might get more on your cameras. You might be able to find your keys or your dog because they're combining it with their trackers. So there are benefits. Maybe even your kids, Kelly. Maybe you could attach that and find them in the neighborhood. Believe me. I might be. After this weekend, it's going to come to that. And I I take your point. It's like, (laughs) give me a quick last word on a major societal change that we're all going to be grappling with for a decade. It's like, you know, sometimes it doesn't work that way. We're going to have to all figure out you know, how everybody reacts to having this new technology. All right, finally, millions of American workers have apparently forgotten about their 401k plans, leaving a trillion dollars on the table. A new study from Capitalize finds $1.3 trillion, in fact, is sitting in more than 24 million unattended accounts. It's mostly a side effect of employees forgetting to roll over their balances or to carry over retirement plans when they switch jobs. Capitalize says forgetting 401ks could potentially cost you almost $700,000 in lifetime retirement savings. Morgan, I've actually done this. I've switched jobs and, and not left it forever. I mean, just for a period of time. And I yeah. had realized, that, oh, my gosh, that money wasn't in the market at the time. It was just sitting in cash. And by the time, you know, a couple of years had passed, it was like, 
I mean, that was that the how would you call it? The opportunity cost of that money was was pretty high. I actually had a similar experience, Kelly, but just I mean, in general, isn't it incredible? I mean, trillion with a T that we're talking about here, uh, I think equally as incredible. And this sort of varies from state to state to state is the longer that money sits unclaimed at some point, it ultimately ultimately makes its way to the state coffers as well. And just how important it is, especially in this day and age where you do have certain apps and certain services and companies that are even rolling out just to deal with this, um, how, how important it is to make sure that you're not leaving. Uh, those funds on the table. Absolutely. Michael, what did you think was most uh, sort of striking or important about this? The headline number is big. It's probably more than 1% of, you know, U.S. financial assets in total. Um, But also, I wonder if they're just defining it as, you know, balances that people have not rolled over or done anything with. In other words, maybe people didn't literally forget about it. It's just that they haven't rolled them over and consolidated them. Uh, It would seem like there should be a better way. Your your Social Security number is on these accounts. Maybe there's a way to, like, notify you. Hey, don't forget about this. But I also predict that if they study the performance of these accounts down the road, every single research project shows the less people look at their balances and the less people play with their (laughs) accounts, the better they do longer term. So they're they're trying to get people to forget. Uh, Deirdre, I was just going to say to Mike, point about rolling it's it's such an archaic process to roll these things over like you're filling out these paper forms and you're mailing them and it's it's so complicated and convoluted trying to figure it out in the I first know. place it's like make it a little easier Kelly, I'm like you. I also, when I read this report, thought of my very first job at a gold miner and thought, what happened to that 401k? Where is it? And I've heard cases where it's invested back into the company's stock. I just looked at the stock of that company and I don't think I would have made anything, but I will still go and look into it. Wait, well, you were a gold miner? Is that what everybody else heard? <laughs> I worked at a gold miner. Yes, unfortunately, uh, tracks the gold price. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let that be a reminder to everybody who's investing in it right now. All right, we'll leave it there, everybody. Thank you very, very much. Dear Jabosa, Michael Santoli, and Morgan Brennan today. Coming up, businesses large and small are struggling to find workers. A look at how the labor shortage is impacting LGBTQ-owned businesses in particular. We'll tell you about that. Plus, Biogen back open after being halted for a second time. Shares are currently jumping 100 and no, I'm sorry, 42 percent. Holy moly. Still a big number. We're back in a moment. Welcome back with Pride Month underway. CNBC is looking at the challenges facing LGBTQ-owned small businesses in particular. One of their biggest obstacles is a familiar one, the lack of workers. Kate Rogers is here with more for us. Kate? Hey there, Kelly. Some interesting findings here. We pulled more than 2,300 adults from certified LGBT business enterprises on a variety of different topics for just about every small business out there. As you said, it's very tough right now to find workers. Our poll found here that owners said they are struggling to hire for a variety of different reasons. 42% pointed to workers not returning to work due to enhanced unemployment benefits. More than a third said that workers found alternative employment. 19% said workers were demanding higher wages, and just over 3% said their workers were afraid of COVID. Nearly 80% now think it will be easier to find workers once enhanced benefits do wind up running out. Most are making their way back from the pandemic. The biggest impact for LGBTQ businesses was loss of revenue, followed by reduced budgets, temporary closures, decreased wages, and more. Good news here, less than 1% say that they had to close permanently, uh, which is a little bit lower than what we've been hearing across the board. 
Overall, more than three quarters of LGBTQ business owners are expecting a full recovery in 2022, and nearly 40% said that government stimulus would be the one thing that could help their small business continue to thrive into 2022 and beyond. We're going to be talking about all of this and much more with personal finance pro Susie Orman on June 17th at 1 p.m. on LinkedIn Live. You can take a look here, register at cnbc.com slash Susie Orman event. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Kate, thank you very much. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.